Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. There it is. I'm Justin Burton, joined tonight by Dr. Nicholas Lee and our producer, Clara Mao. Clara, say hi. Hey, everyone. Nick, you're filling in for Chris tonight. Hey. I am the Chew Man. All right. Uh, Nick, the Chew Man Chew, where (laughs) our guest tonight is Dr. Angela Wyan to discuss heavy menstrual bleeding. And this was a pearl-packed episode. But before we get into some content, hey, Nick. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics of pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Wyand, who is a pediatric hematologist with a particular focus on shematology. Dr. Wyand is an assistant professor and associate fellowship director of pediatric hematology oncology at the University of Michigan, where she also helps to run a clinic devoted to caring for young women and girls with bleeding and clotting disorders. She teaches us about the diagnostic workup for heavy menstrual bleeding, treatment options, including every other day iron and antifibrinolytics, and why PCP labs may not be doing accurate von Willebrand tests. Sounds great, Clara. So without further ado, let's get to it. Dr. Wyan serves as a consultant on medical advisory boards for Takeda, Genentech, and Sanofi, for which she has received honorary. Dr. Angela Wayand, it's wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to the Cribsiders. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. And am I saying it correctly? Uh, Dr. Wayand, is that it's right? It's Dr. Wayand, but I answered anything. So Wyand. whatever you say, I, I'll go with. I apologize, Dr. No. Wayand. Because we're an informal group, actually, is it okay if we if we use your first name? Yes. We try to make that a universal policy. Absolutely. Angela, easy enough. Thank you so much. Uh, we really appreciate your taking the time. Excited to learn from you. And we would love to get to know you better. We'd love for our listeners to get to know you better. And so we always like to just start by asking, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Can you give us the the one-liner that describes you and maybe something outside of medicine as well? Sure. So um, I'm a Midwestern shematologist, wife, mother to two crazies, and person with a serious cake problem. I guess that's most of it. Cake problem sounds like a, a great problem to have. Do you have a what's your favorite go to? What's your favorite type of cake? Okay, so Nigella Lawson has this amazing recipe for Guinness cake with cream cheese frosting. It's incredible and it makes a really good breakfast. Wow, Guinness cake. Leftovers. It's awesome. Nice. We'll yeah. put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's delicious. Excellent. I'd love to hear about um, one of your favorite books that you've read recently or found a book like a TV show or any other form of media that we should check out. Oh, my gosh. So actually, um, well, so many. Um, But I would say my husband and I actually just watched The Night Watchmen, um, which is like a BBC. I I guess it's maybe like a mini series. There's like six episodes or whatever. But um, it was really good. I was actually surprised at how much we liked it. It's like some interesting international spy intrigue, sort of. Do you find as a hematologist group that you guys are into like vampire novels and things? Is that... uh... Something that you shy away from or Dracula um, I wouldn't say 
really one way or another. I did work in a zebrafish lab during uh, my fellowship and one of the like mutants that they created in the lab, they needed a name for it. And they named after like a vampire character in Buffy, which I don't actually, I've never seen that. So um, when they like talked about it, I was like, I don't, I don't know what that is, but um, I wouldn't say there's like a predisposition one way or the other in terms of vampires. I read Twilight like a million years ago when it first came out, but that's about it. Uh, I have a fun question that's off script. Um, do you have a favorite like holiday tradition that you have with the upcoming season? Oh my gosh. So many. So I'm totally the person who like right after Halloween, we take down our Halloween stuff and start putting up Christmas and like are already listening to Christmas carols and like all the Christmas movies. I'm a huge fan of like all the old ones, like It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street and all of those. Um, so we'll watch all of those and try to just like extend the season forever because in Ann Arbor after New Year's, it's like rough go for a month or two before there's something to look forward to. So definitely just kind of embracing the very extended yeah. holiday Gotta season. Got to get it in while it's socially acceptable about it. That's right. <laughs> and even maybe a little bit when it's not, but but yeah, we try to keep it in the rational area. Great. Um, well, it's great to, to know you a little bit better. And I think we have a full show today to kind of talk about um, a lot of great pearls on managing uh, heavy menstrual bleeding. And so let's dive into some content. And then Clara, do you want to uh, introduce our, our first case and, and get us started? Yeah, absolutely. So um, our patient, Annie Mia, she's a 13-year-old girl presenting to her pediatrician's office with several months of fatigue despite getting eight to nine hours of sleep every night. She says that her periods are fine, but when you ask further, she, she tells you that she started menstruating at age nine. Her periods have always been irregular, coming every month or two and last around 10 days. They require her to change her tampon in between almost every class during the school day, and she also gets painful cramps the first two days of each period. So kind of starting out with the basics, how would you define a normal menstrual cycle, and and what do you think of when you say heavy menstrual bleeding? Sure. So yeah, so I think this is super important. As you mentioned, you know, she said her periods were fine. And I think most teenage girls aren't going to like jump right in to say, oh, let me tell you all of the details. Um, and often don't necessarily recognize when they're abnormal. Um, so typically, um, we think of like a normal period as being anything less than seven days, you shouldn't have to change products um, more than every couple hours. Um, we always like clarify why they're changing products, because sometimes they'll say I change products every hour, but it's more of like a sanitary thing where they get grossed out by blood on the pad. But you shouldn't, you know, be having to wake up overnight to change things. Typically, you should just have one period per month. It is difficult in the first couple of years after menarche, just because things tend to be more irregular. Um, and I think that actually ends up leading to a lot of girls with abnormal bleeding being missed because they're just kind of told, oh, you know, this will get better. Um, it's just the beginning. And so it's normal for it to be um, all over the place. And when do you define what classifies as as heavy menstrual bleeding? And, and maybe even taking a step back, I think sometimes in clinics when I precept, I sometimes see the term menorrhagia, dysmenorrhea, abnormal uterine bleeding all used synonymously, which I don't think is right. Can you kind of walk us through uh, those terms and kind of the, the definitions, especially for heavy menstrual bleeding? Sure. So um, heavy menstrual bleeding, historically, they defined 
actually by volume. So anything more than 80 mLs in a one menstrual cycle. Um, but as anybody who's ever seen patients knows, no one is measuring in mLs, right? So um, that's not actually very helpful for clinical practice. Um, so they've now kind of changed the definition um, to be much more patient-focused and broader where it's any you know excessive bleeding that's happening regularly that affects quality of life in any way. So it kind of went like the complete opposite end of the spectrum with a very broad um, definition. I think typically things that kind of put me on alert for heavy menstrual bleeding are if you're bleeding more than seven days, um, large clots, you know, larger than the size of a quarter, if you're having accidents, especially overnight, um, or changing more than every two hours because the products are actually soaked. Um, abnormal uterine bleeding tends to encompass kind of more, you know, if you're having really irregular bleeding, not necessarily heavy, kind of all the different kind of any irregularities in your menses um, versus dysmenorrhea is typically used to describe um, period cramps or pain associated with periods. But they're kind of getting away from menorrhagia and more into heavy menstrual bleeding um, as the term that's preferred. Great. I think that's very patient-centered and much more straightforward for everyone probably. <laughs> um, so I think you kind of alluded to it a little bit when you know you have these younger patients who are just starting menarche or just the year or two after that it could be a little bit irregular and sometimes gets missed. So maybe it'd be helpful if we could go over a little bit of the physiology of how, you know, our menses occur and then also why it's a little bit abnormal. And then some doctors feel like, or pr practitioners feel like it may regulate itself in a couple of years. Sure. Um, so if you think back to kind of the normal menstrual cycle, which even as a hematologist, I don't really think about all that much, but um, you have like a follicular proliferative phase, which is the beginning, kind of the first 14 days of your cycle. And then typically, if you have a normal 28-day cycle, which is not super common for people to have exactly 28-day cycles, um, then you ovulate um, around day 14 and then have kind of the luteal or secretory phase. And at the end of that, you kind of have a kind of precipitous, as long as you don't have implantation um, or, you know, conceive. At the end of the luteal phase, you have kind of a precipitous drop in your hormone levels, so your 17-beta estradiol and progesterone, um, and that is kind of what triggers um, the actual bleeding. So typically in like the first year or two after menarche, um, you have oftentimes anovulatory cycles, so you're not having that um, ovulation around day 14, and so that can cause things to just kind of be off. And so, you know, sometimes people will just bleed for like, start their period and just bleed for a really, really long time. But there's just not kind of that cyclical nature because you're missing that uh, key component. And so for this patient who's in front of us, who's, you know, a girl of childbearing age and is complaining of fatigue, and we're starting to see some signs that maybe this is related to her menstrual cycle. Can you walk us through how do you take a menstrual history? Well, how does an expert take a menstrual history? And how should we be really trying to incorporate this in our clinic? What are the big things you're asking? Sure. So I think um, the biggest thing is just being really like open to the conversation. And like so many things in medicine, you know, it's not something that most people, especially teenage girls, feel super comfortable about. So similar to like asking people about their stool, like that's not something people get super excited and are very, you know, anxious to tell you about. Um, so I think trying to really normalize it. I, I do start kind of more broadly with like, how are your periods? Because I want to get a sense of whether they think they're abnormal and then go into more details. And so I ask a lot of details like, 
you know, how many times a month do you bleed? And how many days do you bleed when you have a period? Um, I typically ask, like on the heaviest day, how frequently are you having to change things? And then if they say that it's pretty frequent, I'll ask, like, are you changing because it's, you know, saturated or are you changing, you know, for other reasons? I'll ask if they have accidents overnight, if they have accidents during the day, if they have, you know, ever have times when they have more than one period per month. Typically, I'll ask about, you know, if they're seeing clots, um, which is a little harder, especially if people are using tampons than with pads where it's much more visible. And then another thing that is associated with abnormal bleeding is kind of what we describe as a gushing sensation. Um, So basically, oftentimes, if you're seated and having a lot of menstrual bleeding, it kind of pools. And then when you stand, you have kind of a gushing um, of blood as it all exits at the same time. That's often, I think, very clear to patients. So they're either like, wait, what? Or they're like, yes, absolutely. Like, I know exactly what you're talking about Um, because it's usually a pretty obvious sign. And with those questions, are you asking specific questions about any family history or other bleeding and bruising history or those things that are kind of high on the list or pretty low down? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I talk about um, the period bleeding and then typically ask a lot of just abnormal bleeding questions that I would ask of anyone who came in, you know, with abnormal nosebleeds or, or anything that, you know, um, raises a concern for bleeding disorder. So I'll ask about abnormal bruising. Bruising typically shouldn't be raised. It shouldn't be larger than the size of a quarter. It shouldn't be on certain areas of your body, right? If you're getting them on your shins, that's very normal. If you're getting bruising on your abdomen, that's not typically someplace we think of having bruising. I'll ask about bleeding with brushing and flossing, although I think the majority of people don't floss well. And so it's always important to ask that as well, because if you never floss, then when you do, you have bleeding from gingivitis. But um, ask about those things. It's less common for people, even with bleeding disorders, to have blood in their urine or stool. But I ask about those things um, and ask about history of procedures, as well as like a family history of bleeding. Oftentimes, there's not necessarily like a family history where they've talked about periods being the issue, but they'll say, oh, you know, every one woman in my family had their had a hysterectomy before the age of 30. That's kind of a red flag that, well, you know, why are people having hysterectomies before they're 30? That's not a typical thing. Awesome. And kind of zooming out a little bit, can you walk us through the differential diagnosis for heavy menstrual bleeding? Like what are the big buckets that you're thinking of? Sure. So um, it's very different depending on the age of the patient. So um, in like adults, which I don't really take care of as much, um, it's more much more likely to be like uterine pathology. So things like fibroids, polyps, endometrial hyperplasia, cancer, you know, all of these things that affect adults that are pretty rare in um, adolescence. So in adolescence, it's much more likely to be more of like a systemic issue. So things like anovulatory cycles is probably the number one cause but underlying bleeding disorders, medications. Um, So if they're taking like lots of NSAIDs, aspirin, they're on blood thinners for for various things. Or if they have, you know, other reasons to have coagulopathy, like liver, kidney disease that can cause heavy bleeding as well. But definitely very different groups of things um, based on the age of the patient. Great. And then I guess moving on to more of the physical exam, you kind of talked a little bit about the bruising and kind of looking for the bruising, but what other sorts of things do you look for on like physical exam to kind of help guide your differential? As you kind of said, there are several different buckets and obviously the history helps, but. Yeah. So, I mean, I think 
Um, a lot of times I'm looking and also asking about symptoms of anemia or signs of anemia as that's frequent if you're having really heavy menstrual bleeding. If there is, you know, concern for PCOS, like if they're having a lot of irregular cycles, then you look for like hirsutism. Um, although really the best way to get at that is kind of asking them if they do anything because um, a lot of women this age, you know, may have pretty significant hair growth. Um, but if you, you know, shave every day, um, then that's not necessarily going to be obvious on exam. And I've actually been surprised. I run a clinic with gynecology where we see a lot of these patients. And I think in medical school and training, I always learned a lot like PCOS uh, often was in overweight or obese patients. Um, but that actually, we see a lot of um, young girls who are quite thin or normal weight that have PCOS. So those are also things we look for on exam. But there's not, like I would say, a I wouldn't say that the physical exam is kind of where the money is in terms of pinpointing the exact diagnosis. Um, we also will do a Baten score, which is like a assessment of hypermobility. Um, because if you remember back to like clotting, collagen is important in blood clotting. And so if you have a collagen disorder, whatever that may be, that can be associated with similar symptoms. And so um, patients with like Ehlers-Danlos, even the hypermobile variant can have pretty heavy periods as well as abnormal bruising and other things like that. So we will assess for hypermobility as well. Yeah, I have to say that's one thing that I'm not doing very commonly is assessing for hypermobility in my adolescent clinic. So maybe I'll add that on. <laughs> um, and then I guess just just for, you know, completeness sake, is there ever a reason why for someone who's coming in with a chief concern of like heavy menstrual bleeding, why you would do like a pelvic exam in the clinic? So it's pretty unusual um, that that happens in our clinic. Um, typically, that only is happening if there's like kind of an additional concern, like if a patient says, you know, I've felt something down there or seen something down there, or um, if they're having, you know, other symptoms that are suggestive of something. But um, even with, you know, STI testing now, you can do um, without. So um, typically, it's pretty unusual that a pelvic exam is done in our clinic. Great. So kind of going back to our case, I think, like you said, in a lot of cases, the physical exam is pretty normal. She has age-appropriate vital signs. Her abdomen is soft, non-tender, non-distended. There's no hepatosplenomegaly. You don't notice any bruising or petechiae, and she's Tanner stage four. So at this point, um, are there specific laboratory values that you would recommend in a workup for this patient? Yeah. So, I mean, I think any patient with heavy menstrual bleeding um, deserves like a CBC and iron assessment. There's a lot of data that um, a normal CBC doesn't, you know, rule out iron deficiency as we see a lot of iron deficiency without anemia and without microcytosis. So definitely at least, you know, a ferritin, if not um, more iron studies than that. Typically a ferritin is going to be your best um, bet as far as you know, overall iron status. Um, but if we are concerned that maybe there's infection or inflammation from a different cause, then we'll send a soluble transferrin receptor, which um, is helpful in kind of distinguishing those, like more of a anemia of chronic disease from iron deficiency. And then depending on, you know, what the history is, if, if they have, you know, really excessive menstrual bleeding or a family history or other um, bleeding symptoms, then we'll typically send um, more of a like bleeding disorder workup. Um, so typically we'll send like a von Willebrand's panel because that's the most common bleeding disorder, PT and a PTT, depending on where you are, PTT isn't all that sensitive for like mild factor deficiencies. So um, oftentimes if we are really suspicious, we'll send factor levels as well. 
there's a lot of people send like thyroid testing for anybody with heavy menstrual bleeding, but we actually published, we did like a review of around 530 young adolescents who came in for heavy menstrual bleeding and had thyroid testing sent. And actually the incidence of hypothyroidism, which is what is typically described to be associated, was lower than you would see like in the general population. So um, I try to argue that we don't always need to send that, but I think most people still do. And you mentioned the difference between iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia. Can you talk about what is the clinical significance of iron deficiency without anemia? And is that something we should still be really keeping an eye out for? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is something that we're learning more and more about um, over time. I think that, you know, historically, I feel like most people are like, if you're iron deficient and you're anemic, then it's a problem. And if you're iron deficient without anemia, who cares? But there's actually a lot of studies showing a lot of different symptoms, fatigue, kind of cognitive dysfunction, all kinds of different symptoms that have really been shown to be associated with low iron, um, even aside from anemia, because an iron is actually involved in a lot of different <laughs> enzymatic reactions throughout your body, not just making red blood cells. Um, and typically iron is kind of shunted to make red blood cells so that you deliver oxygen to your brain, which is good, but is important for other things. So there are a lot of symptoms that people have. And I think it's important to treat even if you're not anemic. The other thing I just got on my little soapbox is that most iron, like ferritin reference ranges that are normal are very far from normal, especially in adolescent girls. So like in our lab, the lower limit of normal for ferritin is six, um, but there's good studies to show that levels less than 30, you're really not making red blood cells efficiently. Um, and most people especially as you get older into adulthood, would aim for more like 50. So that's problematic as well. And we see a lot of people in the community that send iron labs and the ferritin comes back at seven and they say, you're great. I uh, don't need to take anything, uh, but that's really not normal. Yeah. And kind of speaking about these reference ranges, you recently published a kind of call to action to eliminate some of the race-based reference ranges that are used in hematology, kind of specifically with regards to how hemoglobin and, and ferritin levels are used to define anemia and, and iron deficiency anemia. Can you talk a little bit more about how these race-based guidelines might contribute to disparities in how we're treating patients? Definitely. So, you know, I think anemia is something that has been shown that if you have it in association with like any medical condition, it's associated with more morbidity and more mortality. And, um, you know, it's generally not a good thing. Um, unfortunately, the way that most reference ranges have been created is that they take, you know, a normal, healthy population, which historically has been um, white people, often men, um, and just, you know, pick 100 of them and say, everybody between the second and a half percentiles and the 97 point five percentile, um, that's kind of your normal range. Um, unfortunately, when they have done that and, you know, included other races and ethnicities, they said, oh, look, you know, for example, if you're black, your hemoglobin can be a point lower than if you're white. And that's normal when really that's probably more reflective of the fact that we know iron deficiency is more common in black patients. We know that thalassemias and sickle cell and all of these different things that can cause you to be anemic are more common in those populations. So instead of normalizing that, I think it needs to be, you know, there's no reason that black people don't need the same oxygen carrying capacity as white people. So instead, we should be identifying that that's abnormal and figuring out why that's abnormal um, rather than just saying, oh, because of your race, especially as, you know, I think more and more people are aware that race is a social construct and does not, um, you know, whether you're black or white, what box are you checking? You know, that doesn't necessarily reflect your 
genetic ancestry or anything like that. Um, and it's similar for women. Actually, we have a paper and a review on the same topic in women right now because the reference ranges for men and women are identical up until menarche, and then they diverge and women are lower. And then post-menopause, they converge again, which to me says you're losing blood through your periods and are iron deficient. But we've now kind of permissively tolerated that iron deficiency and said, oh, women's hemoglobin, it's fine if it's a gram lower when, again, there's no reason that like we should not need as much oxygen carrying capacity. That's great. I think it's an important part of our podcast is to kind of identify some of these disparities, which are prevalent throughout every subspecialty in every field. This is one I, I was not aware of. And so I think it's uh, good to shine light on it and a good way to kind of call for action to for people to continue to identify these, question them, and figure out how to provide good patient care to, to all patients. Yeah, I think unfortunately, most people are unaware. Um, you know, I just realized that the last couple of years, but like up to date and a lot of like big references do state that, that, you know, if you're black, that your hemoglobin is lower. And um, I've had a number of people since we wrote the article reach out and say like, you know, I was in clinic with someone and they were trying to tell me it was okay that, you know, this patient because they were black. And I was like, no, no, it's, it's not okay. I can't just dismiss that. Yeah. Well, thank you for your advocacy for for drawing attention to that. And we'll share in the, the show notes your articles on this because I think it's important awareness. While we're still on the the discussion of general laboratory workup and looking into these patients and trying to to investigate causes and things, is there a time when you pull the trigger or that a primary care physician should pull the trigger on things like imaging or a pelvic ultrasound in a patient that we have identified? with heavy menstrual bleeding? Yeah. So I would say like similar to a pelvic exam, it's less commonly done um, than kind of laboratory workup in history. I think that if, especially if patients are having a lot of dysmenorrhea in association with their periods, then that often is kind of the impetus for the gynecologist to order a pelvic ultrasound. I think when patients aren't responding to therapy appropriately or how we would expect them to, sometimes that is an impetus as well. I mentioned like cancer is um, more common in older people with heavy menstrual bleeding, but it's not, it's not common at all in adolescents, but, you know, does happen. The gynecologist that I work with always talks about this adolescent that she cared for who bled and bled and bled and nothing was working and nothing was working. And they eventually did a pelvic exam. The family had been very adamant against it. Um, and she had a mass and um, it ended up being malignancy. But thankfully those cases are few and far between, but I think, you know, if the story doesn't seem exactly right, then that will be ordered. And usually an ultrasound is is where that starts. Great. So for the next part of our case, let's say Annie gets her patient, her lab drawn, um, and they come back with a hemoglobin of 8.5. Her MCV is 71. RDW is 19. Platelets are 400. Ferritin is 20. Um, her PT INR and PTT are within normal limits, and the pregnancy test is negative. Um, what do you think of those lab values? Yeah, so I think um, one thing that I would, you know, really encourage people to to take away is that if your periods are leading you to have a hemoglobin eight, that's very abnormal. Um, you know, that's a, a fair amount of bleeding, um, and you know, I think that can happen over time sometimes. And, you know, typically that's pretty well compensated. So, you know, the girls that we see in the ER that where their hemoglobin is four, but it's happened, you know, over a very long period of time and you have compensation and versus, especially I think 
it's kind of helpful to know when menarche occurred when you're looking at those labs, because if she's had two periods and her hemoglobin is 8.5, um, that's even more concerning than if she's been menstruating for you know, six years and her hemoglobin is 8.5. With iron deficiency anemia, we often will also see a thrombocytosis, um, just because if you remember back to um, normal like hematopoiesis, there's a common precursor for red cells and platelets. And so if you don't have iron to make red cells, you end up shuttling a lot of those precursors to platelets. Um, so oftentimes that's a clue if you're concerned about iron deficiency, along with MCV, obviously. That's a good pearl. Isn't it? Isn't hematology yeah. fascinating? It's amazing. And they actually only realized that, like, I feel like that paper came out in blood, like in the last five years. Like everyone kind of knew like thrombocytosis happens, but you can actually also get thrombocytopenia with iron deficiency. It's just much less common. I'm not sure they know the mechanism of that. So that's great. So let's say we have these labs that really are suggestive of, of true iron deficiency anemia. We have a good sense that this is, you know, heavy menstrual bleeding in an adolescent girl. What's your general approach to, to treatment in this patient? We'll start broadly. What, what's your general approach to treatment for these types of patients? Sure. So um, I think, you know, when we're thinking about iron deficiency, I think um, another thing that I would put out there, especially like if you're seeing someone who's not a teenage girl with heavy periods, is like you always need a reason for the iron deficiency. So in this case, we know that it's probably her periods. Um, but in order for the iron deficiency really to be treated effectively, you need to tackle that underlying cause, um, which is to slow down, if not suppress her periods entirely. Um, and I think for someone, if her hemoglobin is 8.5, um, typically we would probably try to fully suppress her. So um, hormones, uh, typically we will start with a pill, which can be either combined oral contraception, which is progesterone and estrogen together, you know, more commonly known as a birth control pill versus like a progesterone only pill. There is kind of a hypothetical risk with estrogen. If you've recently had menarche, that you can have premature closure of your growth plates and lose some height. Um, if you start estrogen-containing medications um, like within the first year or so after menarche, um, there's not actually good clinical data to support that. But typically, if someone is like early on after menarche and we're considering whether to start that, we'll like see how tall they are and see how tall their parents are and you know, kind of try to get a sense of if we think they're going to, you know, grow a lot more. Um, and if that is the case, then we would typically start a progesterone only pill, which is always done continuously versus the birth control pill, which can be cyclically or continuously. And following up on that, do you typically prescribe uh, continuous versus cyclical for a patient with heavy periods? So for a patient that has, that's like significantly anemic, I usually will do um, continuous just to try to really give them a period of time where they're not bleeding at all and they can build up their iron stores, make some new red cells um, versus if they're like a little bit anemic, then cyclically I think is fine. And some of that, you know, there's sometimes a patient preference or family preference where they're like, it's not normal to not have periods, but it's actually very normal if if we are inducing you know, suppression. It's not normal if you come in and you haven't had a period in six months naturally. Um, but if, you know, we have girls that go years without having periods and, and that's fine. We do tend to see when people are on continuous that depending on the patient, at some point they have, you know, too much buildup of the endometrial lining. And so we'll start to have spotting. So in that case, we'll just have them stop and have a period for, you know, three or four days and then um, start up again. 
for the continuous, do you have a like a recommendation on dosing? Because I know sometimes you have to up titrate the dose to get the desired effect of essentially stopping the bleeding. Yeah. So typically, um, you know, it depends a little bit where you're seeing the patient, but if we're seeing the patient in the office and their hemoglobin is 8.5, we typically will just start with kind of a lower dose, um, like a 120 lowest, um, I shouldn't say the blurant name, but, um, that's just like ethanol estradiol and, um, northendrone, um, which is like a very, you know, probably the most common combination, but like the 120 is the lowest dose. So typically we'll start there. And if that doesn't stop their periods, then kind of go up from there. Um, and similarly with like progesterone only northendrone is 0.35 milligrams and we'll start there like the mini pill. And then, um, you can go up. Sometimes we do like 10 milligrams of that, um, which is obviously a lot higher, just depending on what they need to stop the bleeding. And how about long acting um, LARCs? Uh, is this something that you'll offer yeah. right away or what's their effectiveness? Yeah. Yeah. So we will offer them right away. Um, typically, I find in adolescence, um, especially if they're not sexually active, that there's some hesitation, both on the part of the patient and on the parent that, you know, there's just a little bit of apprehension about, you know, doing an exam and, and placing it and then having something that's going to be there longer term. Um, but they are quite effective. About um, one out of every five uh, patients with a levonorgestrel IUD will be completely amenorrheic. And then the, the you know, remainder typically have much lighter periods. The copper IUD is, is not so good for heavy menstrual bleeding and oftentimes will make bleeding worse. The implants, um, we typically don't use very well because patients typically have pretty irregular bleeding on that. Um, every once in a while, we'll have patients that are interested in that and we do that. And sometimes they're very effective, but mostly don't recommend those. And when would you use an antifibrinolytic? Yeah, so great question. So um, antifibrinolytics can be really effective for bleeding. Um, I find that they are most effective if you have a patient who has like a normal duration, regular period, you know, maybe they bleed for five days a month, but it's just really heavy flow because um, the antifibrinolytic, you know, stabilizes the fibrin clot and so can be very effective for decreasing the total amount of flow, um, but doesn't do anything to regulate your cycle. So it ends up being um, not as frequently used in our clinic just because a lot of these patients um, have really long periods or have like, you know, two weeks of bleeding and then stop for five days and then start bleeding again. And it's not going to do anything um, for that, you know, longer duration of bleeding. It's just going to decrease your amount of flow while you're bleeding. Um, but we do use it in combination with um, hormonal contraception as well in patients like if hormones alone aren't stopping their bleeding. Great. Maybe, maybe. Although there's a um, contraindication in the United States. So you might get pushed back from pharmacy about that. In general, there's just a contraindication in the United States or a very specific one? Um, so there's a contraindication on the product label in the United States for tranexamic acid and hormonal contraception combination uh -huh. therapy due to a hypothetical risk of thrombosis. We're the only country that has that. And in a lot of countries where birth control is over the counter, you know, millions of women are probably taking that combination at any given time. Um, and actually the literature doesn't really support an increased risk of thrombosis, but we do have that contraindication. So we do get pushback from pharmacy. Um, I do have an international registry that we've started to try to collect data so that that will no longer be the case. I will say this was another great pearl that I learned in your uh, very popular tutorial about the transenzymic acid 
for heavy bleeding, which I have not tried before, but think I might try to introduce into my practice now. Yeah, it, it actually, I think, can be really great, especially for patients who, you know, have hesitation for hormones for whatever reason. You know, sometimes it's like a mom that had a bad experience with hormones. Sometimes it's like a very young girl and the parents feel weird about her being on birth control. But I think there's definitely a subset of patients that really prefer like a non-hormonal. And it is something that you only take during the period um, versus the hormonal that obviously you're taking um, even when you're not bleeding. It is three times a day, which is less than optimal. But it's pretty well tolerated. There's also aminocaproic acid, um, which is another antifibrinolytic and is cheaper, usually for heavy menstrual bleeding. If this is the indication, it's just as easy to get tranexamic acid because there's actually data on heavy menstrual bleeding with tranexamic acid. I feel like we covered a lot, so maybe I can do a little teach back. So for our patient who's pretty pretty anemic and having heavy menses, I think that we kind of veered on the side towards more continuous progesterone therapy just to kind of give her time to, if it's okay with the family and with their values, to kind of stop her bleeding and allow her to kind of recuperate, restore iron levels, and then be able to produce more red cells, which would be kind of the progesterone analogs that we talked or the medicines that we talked about before. And then, you know, if they were more interested in a kind of a lark, then the best option would be kind of essentially a hormonal IUD as opposed to the copper IUD or even the the implant, which oftentimes doesn't, you know, causes irregular bleeding. But maybe it would be helpful if it's okay with Justin and Claire if we step back and maybe change the case a little bit and that maybe they have normal iron stores, but maybe their ferritin's a little bit low. So we want to get a little bit better control of their heavy menstrual bleeding, but we have a little bit more time to work and we don't need to use a continuous agent. So maybe talking a little bit more about NSAIDs and then uh, like a more cyclical method of control of their heavy menstrual bleeding would be helpful. Sure. So um, yeah, NSAIDs have been shown in studies to um, be helpful in some patients for heavy menstrual bleeding. As a hematologist, I don't use them super frequently because they do, you know, impact platelet function. And so if there's concern for a bleeding disorder, um, we typically advise our patients not to take them. Um, although uh, they do tend, you know, with the anti-inflammatory properties to be really helpful for dysmenorrhea. So we will let them use them a little bit. Um, but in patients who don't have a bleeding disorder, they can be quite effective. And then cyclical, you know, Oral contraceptives um, can be very effective as well. Typically, patients, you know, will be 21 days on. One thing is um, that triphasics are not good um, in general for heavy menstrual bleeding. So there's like monophasic where you have one dose for the whole month versus triphasic where you actually go down. Um, and if you remember back to like the physiology of menstruation, the impetus for bleeding is actually like withdrawal of progesterone. And so if you're going down on your dose of progesterone, you're much more likely to have bleeding. So people who have heavy menstrual bleeding are more likely to bleed pretty irregularly. They're on the triphasic combined pills. So typically we'll use like a monophasic and they shouldn't bleed for those 21 days. Typically they'll have shorter and less heavy bleeding during those placebo weeks. Great. And then focusing in on iron, what's your like go-to iron formulation? What do you tell patients in terms of instructions for how to take it? Sure. So, um, you know, Oral iron is usually um, where we start, depending kind of on the patient. Um, I think ferrous sulfate has the most data and is the most easily available. Um, and if you're able to take pills, that's great. Their liquid is is horrible if you take care of younger kids. So I'm a big fan of other options if you need a liquid. We do 
either daily dosing or every other day dosing um, due to improved absorption versus I think historically a lot of people would do even up to three times a day. Um, but if you remember when you take iron, your body increases hepcidin and subsequent doses are not really as well absorbed um, because of that uh, feedback mechanism. So um, there is some data in adults that every other day um, in like non-anemic patients is probably best. Um, so depending on the patient, I'll do either daily or every other day. I think every other day can be really difficult to remember because it's not like you can say like Monday, Wednesday. So sometimes we'll say like Monday, Wednesday, Friday and skip the weekends if we're not that, that concerned. But I think people on daily probably forget sometimes anyway. And then, you know, as a, as a resident who's in the hospital a lot, my favorite thing to do is give people IV iron, I'm going to be honest. So I guess w- at what point do you think about giving IV iron? And are there any, t- any times that you consider just kind of passing, bypassing oral iron and going to IV iron? Absolutely. So, you know, when I was in training, I feel like there was a lot of hesitation with the people I trained with uh, using IV iron. And I think that was kind of a holdover from historically a lot of the formulations. There were a lot of side effects and anaphylaxis. And now our formulations are a lot better and, you know, don't have as many side effects. Um, I think, especially if you can use one of the formulations that um, you can get like the whole dose in and one infusion, um, they're incredibly helpful. And I think that's a lot easier as iron taking it every day or every other day is not easy, um, especially, you know, for patients who like may have baseline constipation or, you know, don't tolerate it for other reasons. So I actually use it a lot more than I previously did um, because I think otherwise you end up, you know, with these teenage girls that have difficulty taking it and, you know, for months are anemic or iron deficient um, when really you could replace their stores pretty easily with IV iron. And with the oral iron, uh, there used to be, I remember learning at one point that taking it with orange juice, is the acid increases iron uptake. Is that still something that you recommend patients to do with iron? Yeah. I mean, I think um, it depends on the patient. I think, you know, there are definitely things that like inhibit absorption, right? So milk and um, calcium and eggs and tannins and these sorts of things are, are not good to take it with. So I worry a little bit more about that, making sure they're not, you know, taking it with a big glass of milk. The juice thing is a little tough. Um, I do take care of a lot of toddlers as well. And I'm like hesitant to say, like, drink a big old glass of juice in the morning. Um, but there is, you know, some data that shows that um, acids and ascorbic acid can help with absorption. But I don't know that it's enough that it's going to, you know, be the, the thing that makes or breaks it. For people who have difficulty um, taking it, there are things you can buy, like they have that little iron fish that is just something that you can put into soups or pasta water or these sorts of things. There's some thought that part of the reason there's more iron deficiency now is that uh, people used to cook more in cast iron cookware and that actually some iron is absorbed through your cookware. Um, So that's kind of the idea behind these things that you can put in your cooking is that they're actually just made of iron and absorb iron into whatever you're eating, which is a little bit easier, especially for the people who have to take liquid that tastes so bad. Just put some raw metal into your pasta pot and... Uh, it's going to my dot phrase. Please yeah. cook with iron. <laughs> iron castware. Yeah. 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 And it's a lot easier than taking the actual stuff. So, you know, one of the clinical things that I feel like I've come across a lot in clinic, and this is a little bit outside of the heavy menstrual bleeding, but when I have a patient who's on a a lark who's on long acting contraception. It's specifically the implant, but every now and then an IUD as well. 
they'll come in, they'll still have breakthrough bleeding, they'll still have, you know, some um, menstrual bleeding that they find causes problems. Are, Are you treating the breakthrough bleeding on top of the lark? Are you doing it with the transemic acid? Are you doing it with estrogen, progesterone, combo pills? Or what can I do to better treat these patients who are having breakthrough bleeding with a lark in place? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it depends somewhat on like, you know, how bothersome the bleeding is and how how much bleeding they're having. Um, I think that at some point in my mind, especially with the implant, like that's a huge reason why we don't use the implant is because people tend to have a lot of this breakthrough bleeding. But so we'll typically, if someone comes in and they have an IUD in place and they're still having bleeding, that's bothersome. Um, we oftentimes will use, you know, depending on kind of the pattern of the bleeding, if it's continuous bleeding that's happening a long time, then we'll use hormones versus if it's short and just heavy, we often will use tranexamic acid and we'll use that um, for some period of time. But I think at some point you get to the point where if you're having to use both, you know, does it make sense to still keep the implant in place or still keep the IUD in place in addition to it? I find that we use that more frequently. You know, when you have, for example, an IUD placed, um, most people will tell you that you can't really assess its full benefit for six months. Um, And a lot of times, especially for people who have really heavy menstrual bleeding, will have a lot of heavy bleeding kind of early on. So there's concern in the bleeding disorders community that you're more likely to have expulsion of of IUDs because of that heavy menstrual bleeding early on. Um, The data doesn't necessarily support that, but a lot of times we'll do that, like use hormones or tranexamic acid for you know, the bleeding in that first six months until we really can see the full effect of the IUD. Awesome. And in like a patient like ours with a hemoglobin of 8.5, she's she has iron deficiency anemia and you start her on like this continuous OCPs and iron pills. How soon would you expect her hemoglobin and her iron stores to kind of recover to a normal range? Yeah. So, you know, if you stop the bleeding entirely and are actually taking the iron, um, it happens pretty quickly. So similar to, you know, some of our toddlers that come in with um, like milk induced iron deficiency anemia, you can see, you know, increase of multiple points in the hemoglobin within weeks. Um, But I think for these types of patients, the biggest thing is, is stopping the periods in addition to that, because if they're still having the heavy menstrual bleeding, you're never going to build up those stores. Um, a lot of times when you start the iron and stop the periods, you'll see an increase in the hemoglobin, but the ferritin will not increase or sometimes even go down, um, which I think people get nervous about, but it's just that you're using that iron to make red cells. And so, um, you know, that will increase over time as you're not actively using it. So do you give any sort of like when you're, you know, writing up your ABS or, or giving instructions, what do you kind of tell patients to like call the clinic back for or, um, you know, come back for a visit if, you know, they're having issues still after after they, they leave the office? Yeah. So, you know, depending on what we have them on, like if they're on continuous OCPs or continuous progesterone only, um, then we typically have them call us for any bleeding because we're not expecting them to have any period. Uh, the nice thing is, is a lot of times you can do a lot of this management over the phone and not necessarily have to have them come back in because you can just go up on the dose of whatever pill they're on um, until they stop the bleeding. And then typically we'll, um, you know, give them all of the signs and symptoms of, you know, anemia to call for. Although typically if they're not having bleeding, um, we wouldn't expect those things to be getting worse. And so with this patient in a primary care office, 
when do you feel like it's important to have them get in front of a hematologist? When's the the indication for a referral to to a subspecialist, to a hematologist or gynecologist, or this hematology gynecology clinic that you guys have going, which sounds pretty cool? Yeah. So I always think this is such like a hard thing because I think my friends that are primary care, you know, pediatricians have this tension between not wanting to refer too much, but not wanting to, you know, manage things that someone else could, you know, lend additional expertise in. Um, And I think it's especially difficult if there's concern for an underlying bleeding disorder. Um, I think if there's any concern for an underlying bleeding disorder, especially if the patient's significantly anemic from their period, then hematology is warranted, um, mainly for the fact that a lot of the bleeding disorder workup um, really needs to be done in specialized labs and interpreted by hematologists because the von Willebrand's disease specifically, all of those are affected by hormones, they're affected by stress, including like if you're actively hemorrhaging. So we'll see patients who go to the ER, have a hemoglobin of four, they'll have a von Willebrand panel checked and it's like elevated. And so people say, okay, they don't have von Willebrand's disease. Um, but if you repeat that once they are um, out of that acute setting, some of those patients have von Willebrand's disease. So um, I think some of the kind of nuanced things around that testing really is a little bit much to ask of people doing primary care who are the most impressive people in all of medicine. I will just put out there because <laughs> um, they have to know everything. And so we're always happy to see anyone, but I think, you know, anybody who's severely anemic um, probably should see a hematologist if it's from their periods. On that note, I kind of always debate in my primary care clinic when I'm like referring, I made the decision to refer somebody to a subspecialist, like, oh, should I try to order some of the initial labs or should I just let them do it because they know exactly what they want, even though that means that they'll have to like call the patient or schedule another visit to go over the labs. So I guess what's your recommendation, especially given that some of these coagulation testing is very specific and niche and I know some of them have to be sent to the lab quickly and run in a timely fashion. So I guess, do you have recommendations for when when the primary care doctor decides to refer, what what sort of testing would be helpful, I guess, to have before the patient comes and what, you know, you kind of typically expect to do in the office on your first visit? Yeah, great question. So I think, you know, in this case, there is concern for a bleeding disorder, like we're going to be getting additional testing anyway. And especially for von Willebrand's disease, we published a paper um, that was a collaborative thing between a lot of these clinics that have gynecology and hematology um, that looked at places that don't do von Willebrand's testing and they don't have um, like the sample processed immediately and like all these kind of pre-analytical variables that really affect your testing. And so there's like a very high rate of um, inaccurate initial testing. And what's difficult with that is then when they get to the hematologist, if we want to repeat that testing, a lot of times insurance says like, no, they've already had that testing. They're like, no, no, that testing is garbage. We can't do anything with that. Um, but but then it becomes, you know, the whole haggling with insurance companies. So um, I think in general, it's fine not to send the things. I think that if the patient's having a lot of heavy bleeding, that you know, getting a hemoglobin and ferritin is very helpful just because, you know, it may be someone whose hemoglobin is four. And if they're not going to get into seeing hematologists for a bit, you don't really want them hanging out at home like that. That's helpful because I honestly do like to try to start the workup pretty early and have definitely ordered a Bob Willebrand panel in the past. And I uh, don't know that I documented all of the considerations and things that went into that were going on at the time. Um, and so may do that less. 
Yeah, it's just a super tricky diagnosis. And even now, um, I saw it on, there was a big collaborative effort through the American Society of Hematology, the National Hemophilia Foundation, um, and some other international organizations to um, put out new guidelines on the diagnosis and management of von Willebrand's disease. And even within that panel, there's a lot of disagreement on like, you know, what exactly should be done. And now like the tests that are widely available, like risocetin are no longer kind of considered like the best test. So it's like complicated enough for even hematologists that don't specialize in like hemostasis that I think it's crazy for us to think that people in the community can like wade through all of that. And usually even within hematology, we test multiple times and, you know, sometimes we'll we'll send even like more specialized testing. So it's just one of those like super tricky diagnoses. Fair enough. And as part of that, my understanding is von Willebrand disease is actually quite prevalent. Is there some other red flags or signs that make you think the person might have a bleeding disorder that again should go to a hematologist? Is it just severity of bleeding or are there other same things that um, we should be on the lookout for in a primary care setting? Yeah, I think, you know, other symptoms, I think what's difficult is a lot of times these are adolescents. Um, and so they haven't really had great like bleeding challenges in their life, right? Like if you've never had surgery, you've never had significant trauma, then, you know, you may not really have ever had anything. And von Willebrand's disease is interesting too, in that like some patients like with severe von Willebrand's disease will only have heavy periods and not get nosebleeds. And then someone else with like identical levels will get really bad nosebleeds, but their periods will be okay. And so, you know, definitely kind of the family history of bleeding, um, you know, bleeding history for patients on their own. But even, you know, I've diagnosed multiple patients who'd had tonsillectomies, which is a pretty high bleeding risk surgery, and they were fine. And then they ended up having very clear von Willebrand's disease. Um, so even surgeries, it's difficult to really say because so much of it is surgical hemostasis. And like if they, you know, cauterize everything really well and suture everything and that sort of thing, then um, it's not even necessarily helpful to have that, you know, surgical history. Awesome. And so we've gone over a lot um, in this episode. Do you have some main take-home points for our listeners? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, trying to normalize the conversation around periods. I think that periods have a lot of stigma around them and no one is really talking about them. And I think back to when I did general pediatrics and saw adolescent girls and just said, like, how are your periods? And they said, they're fine. And then I moved on to the next question. Um, so I think just, you know, really trying to get a more detailed history and then the importance really of, you know, evaluating their iron stores um, in addition to checking for anemia. And then I guess lastly, just, you know, it's very treatable. And so many of these girls, um, you know, it has really negative effects on their quality of life in addition to the downstream, you know, medical consequences like iron deficiency and anemia. And it's very easily treatable. So whether that's by their primary care doctor or by a gynecologist, you know, whoever it is, um, you know, not just letting them kind of suffer in silence. Because I think society has a tendency to say, well, periods are just hard. So, you know, deal with that, like be miserable for one week out of the month. But that really should not have to be the case for these girls. Great. Well, thank you for being on the show. And thank you for advocating for, for all of these patients. Um, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? Ooh, I do want to plug something. Okay, Healthcare Workers versus Hunger this is our second year. We did it first year last year. It's a competition, mainly based through Twitter, if people are on Twitter, um, where we are raising money to fight hunger. So you can donate to any food bank around you. You can join a team. 
Um, most of the teams last year were specialty based. So uh, pediatrics or internal medicine or hospital, you know, there's all kinds of teams, but if people want to donate, it's going to be um, probably around the week following December 12th. So look out for it. Perfect. That'll be right around the time of release. How long does it go for? Uh, a week. Okay. We'll try to, we'll try to sync the episode release uh, maybe around that time. Perfect. But uh, awesome. We'll, we'll share the news. Well, thank you so much again for joining the Cribsiders. We're we're grateful to, to have you on. I think there's a lot of great pearls here. We really uh, appreciate you having you on. Yeah, thanks so much for the invite. It was super yeah, thanks fun. so much. This was really fun. So this has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. Subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Or shoot us an email at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Clara Mao, our wonderful social media team, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful executive producer team. I have been Justin Lee Burke. I'm Clara Mao. And this has been Nick Lee. Thank you, and have a good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode. 